Welcome to the Intellis IQ Podcast with Allison Van Duren, Vice President of Clinical and Quality Services at Intellis. We're elevating the business of healthcare and discussing timely topics that impact value-driven outcomes for both patients and providers. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us. My name is Allison Van Doren. I'm from Intellis, where we are elevating the business of healthcare. On today's podcast, we'll be speaking with Dr. Lucas Shelley regarding the biggest worldwide topic in healthcare currently, COVID-19, and his experience in the inpatient setting. Dr. Shelley, do you mind taking a minute to tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Sure. Hello, Allison, and thank you for inviting me to be with you today. I am an osteopathic-trained family physician, and I started practicing traditional family medicine, which included both inpatient and office-based care, in 2002 in the Chambersburg area. In 2004, we started the hospice program at Chambersburg Hospital along with three other local physicians. And I've been practicing hospital medicine in Chambersburg and Waynesboro Hospital ever since. Enjoyed working in the WellSpan Health System. Great. Thank you so much for taking time today to talk to us. Um, We know that COVID is unlike anything we've seen before in medicine. So you, Dr. Shelley, are right on the front lines. Since many of our listeners are working remotely these days, can you tell them a little bit about what the environment in the hospital feels like right now? Well, currently in our hospitals, we have a little bit of a feeling that we've made it through our first wave of COVID patients. And we are transitioning into accepting that this will be part of our daily work, and we'll be dealing with COVID-19 for a while. Two weeks ago, we were at our high census with COVID-positive patients, and we were definitely stressed, but we weren't overwhelmed. And that was due to uh, a lot of great preparation by our leadership and mobilizing our staff and repurposing a lot of our staff to be able to manage any type of surge we might get. So, Before that, and before we got that surge, the anxiety that preceded this sort of surge was tempered by the fact that we just need to get these patients cared for. The uncertainty and the anxiety, I think, are two good words to kind of describe what these last three months have been on the front lines. Early on, we were learning about COVID-19 and the recommendations about treatment and PPE and isolation was uh, changing almost hourly and for sure daily. And then the anxiety of that we could actually get sick with this condition ourselves, uh, taking care of these patients just really put another layer of stress on an already stressful situation. And, you know, this was new for us. Most of us never have taken care of patients where we ourselves could actually contract the illness. So that just took some getting used to and, and um, getting adjusted to. And then the turnaround on test time. Unfortunately, in our health system, it's taken around two to three days to get the test results back. So you have this sort of limbo time where not only the patients are, uh, are anxious and the staff is anxious. Is this person positive? Are they not positive? You know, how much do we need to continue with the isolation. And so really on the front lines, there was a lot of anxiety and uncertainty initially. Now that we've kind of been through our surge, it's a little bit of, okay, this is, this is going to be our quote, you know, people are using that new normal. And um, this is how we're going to work. And this is how um, 
uh, it's going to have to be done and we're going to have to get this part of our routine and, and to a certain extent become comfortable with it. Yeah, that, that ability for your facility to flex employees and change your resources around really is a, a, a testament to the good care that you all must provide. And we've heard a lot outside of COVID about the decreases in some of the rates of pretty acute conditions like acute myocardial infarctions. As far as those acute conditions that have seemed to taper off in the height of the COVID-19 outbreak, what has your experience been? And with those conditions we frequently see in the ER or in the inpatient world over these past few weeks. Yes, uh, we have definitely seen a decrease in our numbers seen in the ED and our hospital census above and beyond uh, the cancellation of elective surgeries. And I mean, five, six weeks ago, you know, we were all geared up and prepared for this surge. And where are we going to put beds? Where are we going to put people, you know, figuring out, you know, our, how we could use our urgent cares to uh, house patients if we need to. And we were sitting around to a certain extent uh, with a very few patients to see, and we're like, where did the heart attacks go? Where did the cellulitis go? Where did the diverticulitis go? All these sort of things that um, you don't think can just all of a sudden be turned off. And we actually dropped there to probably about 60% of our hospital census on our service. And now we've geared back up. People have started to come back, and we're probably at 90% of our usual census now. But I think basically patients were just sort of scared to come and delayed care. And when they finally did come to the hospital, they were sicker. And so just the other week, my partner and I were sitting in the physician's lounge and we were saying, you know what? You know, our census isn't terribly high, but man, every single patient is really sick and high acuity. And so it feels like we're seeing a whole lot more people, but it's just that everybody we're seeing is really sick. For example, I mean, I just had a young uh, young mother I saw yesterday in the hospital. Last week, she thought she was getting a urinary tract infection, and she's flat out told me, she's like, I didn't want to come. I didn't want to come check, get checked. I didn't want to expose myself. I didn't want to potentially expose my family. Well, unfortunately, you know, she came in. Now, fever, back pain, has a, a severe kidney infection, a pyelonephritis. Now, she has to spend a couple days in the hospital for IV antibiotics. So, people are definitely delaying care. When they're coming, they're sicker. And so we just have to kind of manage that and understand that that's where we're at right now. Yeah, you can, you know, empathize with the fear of putting themselves into those situations. But we're seeing things open back up more and more recently. How safe should the patients feel with returning for care? Well, that's one reason why I felt I should do this podcast with you today. And if I can just kind of get the word out that, we are trying to make our facilities as safe as possible. We've increased our cleaning protocols and sterilization protocols. We've sealed off the COVID positive patients in an isolated wing. We've increased the number of negative pressure rooms that we have available in the hospital. We're doing everything we can to try and keep patients safe. All of our staff is wearing masks. We're asking all the patients if they can tolerate to wear masks just to really try and decrease that transmission as much as possible. But with that being said, 
the hospital and the emergency room isn't the number one place to hang out if you don't need to be there. <laughs> and so as you know, what I was saying before, you know, please do not delay care. So many of outpatient practices have flex adapted as well. They have phone visits, they have video conference visits. Um, you know, they have worked now how to make um, their uh, waiting rooms uh, uh, physically distanced or maybe having you wait in your car and having, you know, texting you and say, hey, you can come in now. So, you know, take advantage of those opportunities to get the care that you need early and before you get really, really sick so you don't have to come in and potentially take that risk, despite the fact that, you know, if you have to be in the hospital, uh, we are doing everything we can to make it as safe as it can be. Thank you. That's, I think that's really important for everybody to hear because, you know, the beauty of modern medicine is that we have those preventative treatments. We have ways to intervene quickly so that patients don't, become, don't have to wait until they're as sick as possible to make it into the hospital. And we've seen in the news the way they kind of interpret the COVID diagnosis and how it's being applied for statistics and mortality data. And since, you know, at Intellis, we are primarily focused on the HIM world and spend a lot of time discussing coding and CDI, we thought we'd touch on it just a little bit um, because there's a lot of discussion in our HIM world about the impact on reimbursement based on coding. Uh, We don't have a separate DRG specific for COVID patients. So they're being put into these buckets with patients with other diseases. So CMS has given us an increase in the weight that's applied to any DRG when the COVID-19 diagnosis is present in the inpatient record. So for the brief and not nearly all-encompassing explanation of how that equates to dollars for everyone, every DRG is assigned a weight. The higher the weight, the higher the resource utilization. So patient with a trach or a heart transplant, that's incredibly resource consumptive, which equates to a very high weight. You come in with syncope, it's far less resource consumptive, and that equates to a much lower weighted DRG. So while a lot of behind-the-scenes math comes into play, my very oversimplified explanation is that the DRG weight we just described is multiplied by a hospital's base rate, and that's individual to them based on a myriad of factors, but in order to determine the reimbursement for each patient. So again, I'm really oversimplifying and overlooking a lot of outside factors. But in the case of someone who is admitted with pneumonia due to COVID, the weight of their DRG automatically receives a 20% increase, which based on that math, oversimplified math equation, it equates to higher reimbursement. So Dr. Shelley, can you explain to the listeners why it clinically makes sense that there would be this 20% increase? for that patient's reimbursement. Sure. I mean, the amount of resources required to care for a COVID-19 patient with respiratory failure versus a bacterial pneumonia patient with respiratory failure, the difference is just astounding. You just think first about the costs of the protective equipment. Every single time anybody goes in to see a patient who is positive with COVID-19, it's a hair hair covering, a mask, a face shield, gowns, gloves, or 
is this other device called a PAPR, which is a sort of a hood and shield that filters and pumps air in, a sort of a, a respirator type of thing inside a hood. So just the personal protective equipment that is involved in caring for a COVID-19 positive patient is additional costs. And then you have the costs of just running a negative pressure room and the treatments. We don't have specific medicines for COVID-19, but these patients may be on higher flows of oxygen than somebody else would be with, say, a bacterial pneumonia, or they're intubated. These patients that are being intubated for COVID-19 are spending much longer periods of time on the, on the ventilator for recovery when compared to a bacterial pneumonia. And so that time that they're on the ventilator, the resources, all the equipment associated with the ventilator, if they're on for an extended period of time, they may need to consider a tracheostomy. So you have that procedure and that those costs. So that's where a lot of that additional monies are going to to care for the COVID-19 patients and why it makes sense to get reimbursed more for caring for COVID-19 patients. And then just think about, you know, some other costs to the staff. We have potentially a nursing staff can't care for as many patients because of the time it takes for donning and doffing of protective equipment and et cetera. So you may have to have staffing increases to care for your COVID unit. So those are additional costs as well. Yeah, and that that makes sense. There's a lot more that goes into that. And there's been some additional question because it doesn't matter if you're necessarily admitted and being treated for COVID, the same rule applies. So if you have a COVID screening and it comes back positive while you're in the hospital, we are still assigning that U071 code. So there's questions about patients who are in with appendicitis and get this 20% bump or a fractured femur and get the 20% bump because of those positive screenings. But again, like you had mentioned with the increased nursing care and the PPE that's necessary, does that still make um, clinical sense to you? Do, are there, can you explain the clinical ramifications in that same kind of setting? Yeah, so... We've had some of those situations, and first of all, the levels of anxiety that occurs when that happens. If you're caring for somebody who is very low suspicion, like you said, came in with a fall and a femur fracture, they were screened to go to the nursing home for rehab, and all of a sudden they turned positive. And so you have all the staff that was in uh, caring for them before they were in uh, sort of the full isolation and all that sort of thing. And so that may mean you have the health system has to furlough the staff to isolate them if they're having any kind of symptoms or make sure they aren't having symptoms and monitor their symptoms. Or even just counseling for people who are scared. They have a, they're caring for a sick uh, parent in their house. And now they're saying, did I take this home with me? You know, testing of staff. So these all sorts of things definitely make sense clinically. Sometimes patients are spending more time in the hospital because of the turnaround time for the test before they can be sent to rehab or to an LTAC or something like that. So, you know, they're ready to be discharged today, but the COVID-19 test isn't back. So they're spending another day or two in the hospital while that test is pending so we can appropriately safely discharge them. So it makes a whole lot of sense for those diagnoses that get that extra tag for that extra reimbursement. Yeah, I can see how that could go further. 
So COVID is one of those diagnoses that doesn't follow our inpatient coding rules of assigning when they're likely possible or probable. A lot of the times, you know, if we have a probable pneumonia, we can pick up that code. But for COVID-19, we can't unless we have clinical confirmation or laboratory confirmation. So the science has been saying it's been pretty consistent with about a 30% false negative rate. Have you seen that a lot in the hospital setting? Well, that's definitely true. And fortunately, I'd say that we've seen it a lot. I would, I'd like to say it's less than 30%, but we definitely have patients where we couldn't believe that the COVID test was negative. Based on everything they're seeing, all the symptoms, uh, we didn't have another really great reason for why they were sick. But we've had so, several of these patients we tested again and, and a third time, and they still were popping up negative. And we're like, really? Three times? You know, as one of these has half to have been positive. But like we had talked before, we have had some of those patients where initially you have a very, very low suspicion and you don't screen them. They don't have the fever. They don't have a cough. They don't have shortness of breath. And for whatever reason, you know, later on in their hospitalization, maybe two days later, they spike a fever for some reason. Or we are doing a discharge, a test for discharge placement, and they turn up positive. And that's that's uh, been more of a challenge. And how to deal with them and how to manage that, like I said, and the resources that all of a sudden that takes as they uh, turn positive. But we are cautious. We do take our clinical suspicion into account. And if the first one comes back ne negative and we still clinically very suspicious, we don't take them out of isolation right away and um, may repeat the test and just to kind of confirm that they are negative because, um, and it's especially true if we don't have another good reason um, right. them to be the way they are. So if they, you come in and they have a fever and you test them and they're negative, further workup uh, shows that they have acute diverticulitis, okay, I believe that it's negative. Their fever is from the diverticulitis. We can take them out of isolation and treat them for the diverticulitis. Because somebody comes in, they have a fever, they're short of breath, they're hypoxic, and some bilateral infiltrates in the chest x-ray, but sputum culture is negative, blood cultures are negative. Some of the other blood tests that we're doing to kind of help a guide our decision making, the viral panel is negative. And this person is, you know, really looks like they're COVID positive, we say, hey, look, we don't have a better explanation. We got to keep with the precautions, keep with the isolation. Let's retest them and make sure this what first one wasn't a false negative. Speaking of the, the clinical uncertainty and those false negatives, clinical, as far as CDI is concerned, clinical uncertainty can occasionally be the catalyst of a query if things aren't documented clearly. So our stance at Intellis has always been COVID or no COVID, that any query that we place should be placed judiciously and only when fully supported. So as you're, you know, still working in the setting with COVID patients, and then we've got the increase of census that's come back. So that's still, you know, pulling you into patient care is always top priority. Do you have any words of wisdom for our CDI encoding listeners when it comes to, you know, queries or working with their providers? Well, first, I will say, um, as a person receiving those queries, I'm very grateful that you guys uh, make sure that the query is supported and 
try not to ask us questions unnecessarily. So uh, thank you for that, and I appreciate that. And, you know, really what my team likes when we get a query is if all the data is in the query itself to help us make our decision. So that that allows us not to have to go back into the record, search through the whole record and say, well, because this supported and not supported and then get back to you. So it just expedites our ability to respond to the query and give you an accurate and appropriate and correct response. That's the best advice I think I can give you is just including some of that data in the query makes it a lot easier. Because you know that, at least for us, how we get our queries, it's a it's a text. Right. And uh, for sure, we aren't in that patient's chart. <laughs> you know, we could be in a different floor, a different unit, wherever. And um, if we have that data right there in the query, it's like, oh, yeah, I remember this. I remember that. That's right. That's, you know, and boom, we can get we can get right back to you. Yep, and that's that's the hallmark of a great query, making sure, you know, we present everything to you. So I know you've got a great CDI team working there, and that reinforces that's absolutely the goal of CDI is to give you all the information to make a sound clinical decision on your own. Dr. Shelley, we appreciate you so much for joining us today. We'd like to thank everyone who joined us and is listening. We look forward to releasing our next podcast and sometime later this summer. For any comments or suggestions for any future episodes, please send an email to webinar at intellisinc.com. That's W-E-B-I-N-A-R at I-N-T-E-L-L-I-S-I-N-C.com. You can also visit our website where we keep everything up to date with the latest and greatest COVID-19 information at intellisiq.com forward slash COVID-19. Again, thank you all for joining us and stay safe and healthy. Thank you for joining us for the Intellis IQ podcast. If you would like to learn more about our IQ suite of solutions, or if you have a topic you would like us to discuss, please contact us at intellisiq.com.